Zechariah chapter 4. Now, Zechariah is a wild and crazy book, like Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. And Zechariah has some pretty far-out visions. Now, you say, man, he was a far-out guy. No, no, God's the far-out guy. God's the wild and crazy one. He's, Zechariah is just watching the show, you know. He's observing it. And so this, again, shows us the, the nature of God in a, in a unique way, displaying his word. And we saw last week in chapter 3, an important chapter, where he had this heavenly vision of Joshua the high priest really representing us and how the Lord, by his grace, gave him new clothes and, and purified him and made him prepared for the ministry. And now we come, and it's a continuation of that prophecy, and I'm going to hook them all together here today as we look at these first seven verses. Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who awakened out of his sleep. So basically, like our ushers, this angel helps wake people up at the end of the service. So <laughs> what happened here is... is Often, the visions are just so overwhelming. They're, they're heavy, and, it, and it's just such a, a, a drain uh, for the earthly body to see such heavenly things that here he is in the midst of the vision just sort of overcome, whether it's just with the intensity of it or whether it's just fatigued him. It, it, nevertheless, he's now being waked up and saying, hey, you know, the vision's not over. I have more for you to see. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on this stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Now, the thing he saw here, no doubt, was the menorah. Now, when they built the temple, as you remember, the tabernacle, God said, God's going to give these guys supernatural wisdom as they're building the various articles because all of this is really a picture of what actually they're seeing in heaven. So in heaven is this candlestick, this menorah. And they built a replica of what was in heaven. And so now he's actually not looking at the temple because the temple's not built, but he's seeing this heavenly vision of this menorah. And indeed, as we study in, in Exodus 25, it sure was. It was pure gold. It was all of one piece. It was huge. It was ornate. It had all kinds of flowers and, and alm blooms and, and all kinds of uniqueness to it. And then, uh, again, the oil would be poured into it, and there the wick would be kept, and it would be lit. It, the oil was uh, the highest quality of oil is a pure oil it tells us in Exodus 27 and it tells us that it was Aaron's sons the high priest uh, family the Kohathites it was their job to keep that candle going 24 hours a day seven days a week never to ever that candle to go out or that candle that lampstand to ever go out so they kept it going cleaning out the sludge and keeping the oil poured in and keeping the wicks uh, long and going and this was their job and it was a very tedious job you know how it is things you got to do every day and several times a day every day and without a break it, it's relentless it was a very relentless job and uh, so he sees this but here's the unique thing about this on top of it there's a bowl and it's like oils going into this bowl and and there's 
pipes coming from the bowl, coming into the lampstands that he's looking at. And notice in verse 3, And two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. And so this is sort of a a radical system. It's sort of a self-fueling candle system. And, And of course, it would have been pretty exciting to say, all right, not to have to keep that thing filled up and lit. It's sort of taking care of itself. It's being done, in essence, by God. And in verse 4, So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? Now, we we don't know what the inflection of the voice is, but this guy keeps doing this over and over again. He says, What's that? He says, You don't know what that is? And then he has to say again, No, I don't know what that is. A little bit irritating, actually. And uh, so he says here, No, I I don't know, my Lord. You know, I just told you I don't know. What are you asking me for? Anyway, you, you know, it's maybe a California attitude thing. I don't know. But he keeps doing this as we'll continue in this chapter. But anyway, in verse 6, he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So he says, This vision you saw, the lampstands, the olive trees, the pipes going, feeding it, and it's self-fueled and taking care of itself. All of that is a word to the Lord, to Zerubbabel. Now, if you guys remember back, God had given a prophecy through Isaiah 200 years in advance about how eventually there would be this king raised up by the name of Cyrus, actually named him 200 years in advance and said, I'm going to use this guy to get the children of Israel back to the promised land after a time of 70-year captivity, as we know from Jeremiah. So we're talking like 130 years before it was even thought about that that there would be a captivity and they'd be taken out of the promised land. God had not already saw them taken out of the promised land. He had already saw not only them coming back into the promised land, but he could give the name of the guy that was going to instruct them to come back into the promised land. And sure enough, the Babylonian Empire was raised up. It was uh, destroyed by the Persian Empire. And the Persian king Cyrus said, hey, go ahead and go back. And remember in the book of Daniel, he was radically praying and crying out to God because he knew it was 70 years and he had been there 70 years. And, and God raised up a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. This is the guy who headed up the, the team. They had hoped that it would be millions of Jews that would go back to the promised land to rebuild it, but it ended up only being 50,000, which was a penance compared to the task that was before them. So the millions of Jews like the Babylonian or the Egyptian lifestyle. They were scattered throughout the world and, and they liked the modern technology of the day and the convenience of, uh, of how things were set up and they didn't want to really go start over. That's a pretty tough thing to do. But Zerubbabel was a man's man. We saw in the very last verse of Haggai, remember there in verse 23, God gave this prophecy about him. He said, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, says the Lord, and I will make you a great, I'll make you a signet ring, and I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel was a man's man. He kept his focus on God. He had a pure heart. He never wavered. But what an incredible task he had at hand. Could you imagine being the guy who's in charge of the 50,000 people and come back and see Jerusalem decimated, not one stone left upon another, and the dust blowing, and and now it's just sort of like a hill 
but a choppy hill and you start brushing the dust away and you see the stones and the rubble and you know on a on a day you might be setting even a few miles away from Jerusalem and, and a good wind comes through and just dust fills the air and causes you to cough and you can hardly breathe because of the ash that the place was left in. And so it was, it was a miserable sight. But yet they started trying to rebuild and they, they said forget Jerusalem. All, all 50,000 people didn't want anything to do with the city. They all went and got farms around in different areas. But yet, after two years of this, he said, we've got to get back to the city of Jerusalem. We've got to clear out the rubble, and we've got to get the temple built. And the people said, yeah, let's do it. And they started in on the task, and it was huge. And, and it took them a long time just to get the foundation laid. Now, we're in the middle of the book of Ezra. And, and there in the middle of the book of Ezra, they, they finally got the foundation laid, and it was huge. They had a celebration, and all the young men were shouting. They could hear it from a long ways off. But all the older people who had come back, who had seen the actual temple of Solomon, they began to weep, saying, this is the sorriest-looking foundation I have ever seen. And, and even with this foundation, what we're going to build is going to be so pale in comparison to Solomon's temple. Why even bother? And it says that, these old men were crying so loud that you didn't know if it was the shouting of a man or the cries of the old men. It was such a depressing scene for these guys. And so here the, old, the young men going, you know, what do you think, Dad? Oh, it's horrible, you know? Hey, Grandpa, we did it! Oh, we might as well not have. It was just a discouraging scene. And, and you're Zerubbabel. You're the guy in charge of this mess. And you look, now later on, they finally, we get to Nehemiah, they built the walls around the city. And nobody wanted to live there. <laughs> they had to get people, sort of force them to volunteer to live in the city. So even with a temple built, even with walls around it, it was still a miserable place. But at this point, there's no temple and no walls. It's just a heap of ruins. It would be like going to a dump every day and, and trying to build something in the middle of a dump. It was a very depressing scene. It was a very difficult scene. And Zerubbabel was becoming weary in the work. He was becoming overwhelmed. And we saw in chapter 3 that God said, hey, this thing can't go forward until there's purity. And there we see by the grace of God, by the power of God, in chapter 3 of Zechariah, he bought purity. But the project is still not going forward because God is saying not only purity, but it has to be by the power and the working of God's Spirit. And this is what that scene was saying. It's God who started this thing. It's God who's fueling this thing. It's God who's going to make this thing happen. Now, for those of you that were with us in Daniel, remember in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy went forth. And it said, when you guys get back to the promised land, there'll be 70, or there'll be seven sevens, 49 years in which the decree will be given to rebuild Jerusalem until it's built. 49 years. Now, at this exact time, they're 18 years into it. So, really, by the prophecy of God, he's saying, you guys got a long ways to go. There's still a lot of work to be done. And so, really, when you look at this picture, and, and, and in the Hebrew, it's rather unique. It, you see the seven pipes with the seven candlesticks. Actually, that's sort of inferred. It's seven sevens. And so, it's a picture of saying, don't forget the seven sevens. Don't forget the 49. 
Don't forget that I'm the one who started it. I, I prophesied it 200 years in advance. I'm, gonna, I'm the one fueling this thing. I'm this one that's going to keep this thing going. It's, it's not all on your shoulders, Zerubbabel. I'm, I'm the one making this thing move forward. And this is the word of the Lord. I, I want to stop there just for a moment. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. You say, how cool to have a vision from God, from heaven, and it's a word to you. I mean, I'm sure Zerubbabel would have been greatly honored, but also greatly comforted to know the hand of God, to know the power of God is at work. And let me tell you something. God wants to do that every single day with you. I just got off the phone with our missionary in Hungry Greg Opine, and, and he just told me a fabulous story. They were down in another city looking to possibly start a church, and they were staying in this little old inn. And he was speaking Hungarian, and this innkeeper was, he owned the, owned the little inn there, was amazed at Greg's Hungarian and said, How, you know, nobody can learn Hungarian unless you're born here. How can you speak Hungarian? And I've been here 10 years. What are you doing here? I'm a pastor of a church. You're kidding. He starts looking around and he finds this ancient, huge book, which was a Hungarian Bible. And he said, I want to see, I just want to hear you read in Hungarian. And so he opens it up and he turns it to Greg. And Greg looks at it and it's on 1 Samuel 23. Greg had spent that whole morning studying 1 Samuel 23 because he was teaching it that night. And he told the guy, he says, I've been studying this very passage you opened all morning long. And he hands the Bible back to him and he says, I'm going to quote it to you. And in Hungarian, he just started quoting it. And this guy was like, his eyes got big and he's like, what does this mean? <laughs> and there he was able just to share the Lord with this guy saying, this is God speaking to you. I love when God does those kind of things. But you know what? God wants to do that every single day. In Isaiah chapter 50, look it up, memorize it, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, why he's in human flesh, this was his, this is how his day began. This is how his day ran. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, The Lord God, referring to his Father, has awakened me morning by morning. He has quickened my ear to hear as a learner or as a disciple. The Septuagint translates it, the Greek Septuagint. A disciple, a learner, that I might have the word, the word, to sustain the weary in the day. And a lot of times you know who that weary person is. It's you. <laughs> And as it sustains your heart, you find that it also begins to sustain others' hearts. And Jesus goes on to say, I was not rebellious, nor did I turn my back. Every day, it's the Father's plan to help you wake up, to help you have an ear, a spiritual mindset, a spiritual heart, to receive directly from the mouth of God a word for you for this day. I love that in, in, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father about his disciples. And, and there in verse 8, he says, And Father, I have given them your words. And then down in verse 14, he says it again. And Father, I have given them your word. You say, well, why did he say that twice? Because the first time in verse 8 of John 17, it's the word rhema, the Greek word. The word rhema 
is the word in season, the word right now, the word for you. And then in verse 14, the word for word, I've given you your word, is the word logos, the written word of God. So often you hear people say, oh yeah, I, I know what the Bible says. So what? I don't believe you, but even if it were true, even if you knew the Bible, you know how to, you know how to prove that, don't you? You say, well, quote to me Hezekiah 10.4. Well, you know, I don't, I don't have them memorized like that. Yeah, I know, because that's not a book of the Bible. But anyway, you can trick, trick them on that one. But um, nevertheless, what you do is even if that were true, the Word of God is not just the Logos. Jesus is not just giving us the Logos. Jesus is giving us the Rhema. Every single day. It's not, oh, I've read the Bible. It's, has God spoke to your heart today through the Bible? It's not, oh, I know what that says. It's not reading the Word of God. It's feeding on the Word of God. Have you, like a little sheep today, chewed up God's Word and let it go into your heart? That Word in season today. Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Logos, Genesis to Revelation, but then also the Rhema, Word, every single day. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell. There they're speaking in tongues in the upper room and all the people in the city begin to show up and they say, what meaneth this? And what does Peter say? He says, this was prophesied in the book of Joel that in the last days, and we are in the last days, Jesus raising from the dead began the last days. Of course, now we're in the last of the last days. That's a whole other thing. But that started the last days. He said, in the last days, my spirit would pour upon what? All flesh. The men, the women, the young, the old, everybody would prophesy. Everybody would have visions and dreams. Guys, do you get it? It's God's desire that we would all be prophets, as, as Moses said to Joshua. It's God's w will that all of us would be empowered by God's Spirit, that all of us would have visions and dreams and prophecies and words from the Lord, and all of us would be experiencing that, that heavenly outpouring of God's Spirit upon our lives on a regular basis, and especially a daily basis, that rhema word to speak to your heart that you could then, as God fills your cup up and you start walking through the day, it splashes on others. In Psalms 1, it says, Blessed is the man. And in the Hebrew, it's inferred, who makes God's word his delight, who works at it. In other words, you say, oh, here's my sports magazine, here's the TV guide, here's the Reader's Digest. You know, oh, you know, I want to see the new jokes in the Reader's Digest, but I won't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose God's word. Blessed is that man who meditates in God's word day and night. He will be strong like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He'll bear fruit in his season. His leaf won't wither. You're not going to be stumbled around and falling into sin. And then whatever that man does will what? Will prosper. Any of you guys need that kind of prosperity in your life? I'd say all of us do. Whether it's, you know, being able to bend over and pick up your newspaper without blowing out your back, or whether it's making the right business decision, we need the prosperity of God. And the Lord says, this is the key that unlocks that door. And it comes from that consistency of life of just seeking the face of God. And so, this is no small phrase, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, because God has a word for you. And here's what that word was there in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Boy, I'd love to preach this whole chapter today. I tried it last night. It took about an hour and 20 minutes. So (laughs) I won't do that for you guys this morning, but we'll pick up there next week. But I do want to concentrate on verse 6 this morning. Not by might, nor by power. The word might, it infers a combined grouping, a collective strength, a collective resources of a group of people. And the word power is referring to an individual strength, an individual resource, an individual ability. And God is saying, it's not by the collective masses, it's not by an individual talented or an individual gifted or an individual rich or individual self-sustained person, it's by my spirit that it's going to happen. And this great mountain that's before Zerubbabel, the the entire city of ash, a heap of rubbles and and a foundation and trying to get that thing built, that great mountain is going to become a plain before the Lord. I remember teaching my kids in Genesis 11 when they were small, and I said, and there they began to build this Tower of Babel upon the plain of Shinar, and, and I, mean, I got all into it, and I said, do you have any questions? Yes, how did they build that giant building on a plane? It's like, no, not, it wasn't an airplane, it was a flat piece of ground. So anyway, <laughs> he's going to take this mountain and build an airplane out of it. No, it's not that. It's going to become flat, okay? It's going to become a nice level place where you can build more stuff on it, okay? And uh, here he says, I'm going to do it by the working of my spirit. Now, guys, as you study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this is a continual theme. Right at the very beginning, remember Abraham and Sarah? Leave your land and go to a land, just start living in tents and be sojourners and pilgrims there. And I'm going to give you descendants and I'm going to help you. And, and, and there they're in the land, they're in tents, they're hanging out, and guess what? <laughs> no descendants. And they're waiting and waiting. And, you know, you could just see some really intense conversations with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, I'm 60 years old. You're 70. I mean, this is starting to get a little bit ridiculous. And then, you know, probably at 65 or 70, she said, you know what, I've pretty well given up this thought. You know, where we come in the Chaldeans, and we've actually found archaeological runs that tell about this whole experience, that if a woman couldn't have a child, she could have her maid have a child for her. And that child would be hers, but the maid could never be released from the house. She had to be a part of the family forever. And so she said, hey, go into my handmaiden, Hagar. And uh, Abraham, being the pagan he was, says, sure, you know. And uh, there they have a child, Ishmael. And you guys remember how Ishmael has become a thorn in the flesh to Israel to this very day, the Arab nations. The work of the flesh. And there they thought, well, this is it, you know. And Abraham said before God, let, let Ishmael live before you. And God said, no, do what your wife said. Kick out Hagar and her son away from the land of promise. They shall not be heirs with the son of promise. 
But it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen until finally Sarah is 89 years old, and God shows up and says, next year you're going to have a baby. (laughs) And Abraham was 99. So she was going to be 90 years old, and he was going to be 100 when they finally had their first child. Turn, if you would, over to the book of Romans and look at God's commentary on this situation. And it's really a picture of how salvation comes to us. In Romans chapter 4, starting there in verse 16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now in the presence of him whom he believed, God, he gives life to the dead, calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, I love this, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. (laughs) since he was a hundred years old. I guess when you're a hundred years old, you can say, man, I'm just about dead. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. I love it in Genesis. It says, and Sarah being an old lady, advanced in years. You know, when you're 90 years old, it's okay to say you're an old lady. 90-year-old woman don't mind that. But uh, she was an old lady, and, and Abraham was more than an old man. He was a step away from the grave. And it says in verse 20, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, God had promised, he, God, was able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now listen to verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Abraham's mountain before him was having a child. And there at 90 and 100 years old, that mountain was huge. But yet, by the power of God's Spirit, that which was impossible with man became possible by the working of God. And then he turns around and says, and that's how we are saved. And that's how we will be perfected before God in heaven. Do you ever feel that way as a Christian? The mountain before you, maybe it's a mountain of lust, maybe it's a mountain of covetousness or a mountain of anger or a mountain of greed. Whatever it might be, you're you're just going, I'm supposed to be a Christian and I'm so angry this isn't right. I'm supposed to be a Christian and I'm so lustful this isn't right. I'm supposed to be a Christian trusting in God and I'm so greedy and I still, this isn't right. And you do everything you can to try to curb it, to try to stop it, to try to maintain it, to try to... And you get to that point, you just wake up going, man, this just isn't the way it's supposed to be. And there's that mountain before you. And you say, how's it going to be done? 
It's going to be done by the grace of God. <laughs> in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, it says, And having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to perfect it in the flesh? It says in Philippians or in Colossians, As you received the Lord Jesus Christ, so now walk in Him. How was it that you were saved? You just fell before God as a wretched sinner and said, I'm unworthy, I am powerless, I can't do anything about it, I'm on my way to hell, I'm impure in your sight, I'm full of sin, save me. And by grace we were saved through faith. It was not of ourselves. it was not of our works, it was a gift of God. That's how we got saved. That's how the whole thing got started. How do we make it a week into it? a year into it, 10 years into it, 50 years into it, it's the same exact way, by faith in the grace of God. And so we look at that mountain, and when it becomes a plain, what do we do? We shout, grace, grace to it. There's not going to be anybody up in heaven going, man, I, I knew I was going to make it because I'm just so holy and pure and righteous. You know, and I figured it out about 10 years ago, if I'm going to be the kind of Christian that's going to make it to heaven, I've got to, you know, start working a couple of things out and, you know, get disciplined in some areas and, you know, make this start happening. There's nobody going to be in heaven saying that. We're going to all walk to the pearly gates of heaven going, I made it! The Bible says if the righteous are scarcely saved, what shall we say about the wicked? And we're going to say, oh, by the grace of God. And then we're going to go look at the books of our life, and we're going to see sin after sin after sin after page. It's going to be a very depressing book. And then we're going to shout louder of the grace of God. And the Bible says throughout all of ages, we're going to continue to learn more of the depths of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the power and the love of God. And we're going to praise Him throughout all the ages because of His grace given towards us, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. How is it going to happen? It's going to happen by grace. You guys, you know that. You've had areas in your life where you thought, it's, it's insurmountable. I, I can't deal with it. And you just fell on your face and said, God, I'm a loser. I can't do anything about it. Help me, God. And then six months later, that thing was out of your life. And all of a sudden, God showed it. And you're going, whoa, how did you do it? That's what I need in my life. How did you do it? What were the steps you took? How did it... You just go, I have no idea. I just remember crying out to God, saying, God, I can't do it. It's impossible. I'm a loser. I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. I, I, I have no ability. And now here I am six months later, and God's done it. It's by His grace. It's by His power that He has accomplished this, that we shout grace, grace to it. And, and so here He says, that's how we're saved. When we can understand the power of his death, the power of his resurrection, the love and the grace of God that was shown to us through Jesus Christ. Later on, we see Abraham in Genesis 22, after Isaac now is of some age, some believe he was the same exact age of Jesus when he was to die on the cross. And there God said, Abraham, go deliver, go, go sacrifice your son. Now, he, God had already said, through Isaac your descendants shall be. So Abraham was quite confident that, that, as it says in Hebrews 11, that even if Isaac was killed, that God would raise him from the dead. He had that kind of faith. And so he went up, and, and Isaac's walking up the mountain saying, Dad, here's the wood, here's the fire, where is the sacrifice? <laughs> 
he started putting two plus two together and realizing, uh oh, I'm carrying this bundle of wood, I'm carrying the fire, and uh, I, I've got a feeling that this is a package deal, and I'm it. <laughs> And Abraham said, God shall, God shall provide himself a sacrifice. And he got up there and we see Isaac, like Jesus, willing to give his life. And there as he began to kill his son Isaac, God held his hand. He says, now I see that you fear me. Now in doing this and not withholding your own son and blessing, you shall be blessed. And multiplying, you shall be multiplied. And then Abraham turned, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. How many of you guys have seen a ram caught in the thicket? That's what I thought. And I think it was Abraham's first time, too. And he, he, he takes it, and, and he sacrifices it. And then he worships, and he says, Yahweh Jireh, God has provided. God's provided. He saw it. He saw the mountain. He literally walked up, and he saw the mountain of his son being put to death. But yet, before it, God, our provider, made it a plain. We look at Moses. Look over at Acts, chapter 7. You're in Romans. Just turn back a page or two. Acts and then Romans, chapter 7. We look at Moses. I love Stephen's and his sermon, his description of Moses. He nails it. In Acts, chapter 7, here's what he says. But when he was set out, talking about putting a basket in the Nile River... Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up in her own as her own son. So he's Pharaoh's son, Moses. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of God, no, of the Egyptians. And notice this description of him was mighty in words and deeds. That's in verse 22 of Acts 7. He was raised up in the wisdom of the Egyptians and was a man mighty in words and deeds. Now in verse 23, when he was 40 years old, but a child, <laughs> it came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him and was pressed and struck down the Egyptian and killed him. And supposed that his brethren, listen, he supposed that his brethren would understand that God would deliver them, listen, by his, Moses' hand. But they did not understand. And you know the story. Moses has to flee for his life. He, he goes to Midian, and there he finds a priest, a pagan priest of Midian, joins himself, and is willing to become a shepherd, the lowest in the Egyptian caste system, of another man's sheep. And he does this year after year after year. For 40 years, Moses is broken in the wilderness. Until finally, you guys remember this story, there at the burning bush, he turns aside, he goes to it, and God says, the people are oppressed, and Moses, you're the guy I want to send you. And Moses starts giving all these excuses. You know, I don't even know, I don't even know you. I was Egyptian, and now I'm a, in the house of a pagan Midianite. I've never learned the Bible. I don't know about God. I, I, I've barely been around any Hebrews in all my life. I, I, how, I don't even know your name. And there he, he begins to explain to him who he is. And, and he says, they won't believe me. And he says, throw down your staff. He becomes a serpent. He picks it back up. He puts his hand inside his coat. It's leprosy. Ah, you know, puts it back in. He's healed. And God says, go show him these signs. And they'll, they'll know that I have sent you. And then Moses says, you know, I'd love to. But I can't talk very well at all. You know my, my speech impediment problem. Now, it's interesting because as a younger man, it says he was mighty in words. But maybe when he was 75, he had a stroke, and maybe his mouth now was sort of limping, and, and, and his right side of his body wasn't strong. I don't know. 
but he couldn't talk very well now. Something happened in those 40 years in Midian. He said, I, I have this speech problem. God said, I made your mouth. I'm with your mouth. And then Moses said, okay, God, oh, I love your will and do your will by whomever else you desire. <laughs> he was this guy at first going, man, I've got the wisdom, I've got the might, I've got the power. Man, everybody can put two and two together and see that I'm this powerful dude. And if anybody can release these Hebrews from slavery, it's me. God's raised me up to be Pharaoh's son for this very hour. What advantage did being Hebrews or Pharaoh's son have for Moses in delivering the children of Israel? None. God reduced it until every connection he possibly had in Egypt, they all died. All the connections were gone. God says, Pharaoh's dead. Everybody you know is dead. It's done. Now go back to Egypt. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by the Spirit of God. And Moses is an example. Of God had to reduce him down to where he had nothing to offer God. He had nothing to offer the Hebrew people except to be obedient before God and let God's Spirit work through him. We see this with the children of Israel. They're in, in Numbers, the first 11 chapters. God counts the people. It takes a long time. There's millions of them. There's over 600,000 men ready to go to war. But yet, we see when they send the 12 spies over, they come back, they say, oh, it's an incredible land, just like God said. But there's giants there, and we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. But Joshua and Caleb jumped in and said, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, because God is with us. God delights in us. God has taken their protection away. They are like our bread. Let's go eat them up. But yet, the other ten spies could not see. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by the Spirit of God. And only Joshua and Caleb could see that. And the people said, let's kill these guys and shut them up. And, oh, I wish we had just stayed in Egypt. I wish we had never left there. And how it grieved the heart of God that they couldn't see. It had nothing to do with their might or their power. But it was by the Spirit of God. Then we see in Jonathan and David. There, remember that story in 1 Samuel 14, where Saul, his dad, is stressing out. He had an army of thousands of thousands of people, and, and the army's leaving until Saul only has 600 guys with him, and the Philistines are mounting a larger and a larger army until there's tens of thousands of them, and, and, and Saul is reduced down to 600, and, and Jonathan just, he can't be around his dad anymore. He's just stressing him out. He, he says, come on. He takes his armor bearer. They go, oh, to go sleep somewhere else. They don't want to be around his dad. He's just flipping out, and, and there he, he, he wakes up early in the morning and begins to say, you know what? The battle's the Lord's. And it doesn't matter whether it's many or whether we're mighty. It's God. And he says to his armor bearer, God could deliver us if he chose, because it's his might, his power, through one man if he desired. And his armor bearer challenged him and said, let's do it. I'm with you, man. And Jonathan's like, I, I, I'm not just saying this. I really believe it's by the power of God and him alone. Let's go. So they start walking, and Jonathan says, you know, I know God can do this, but it may not be the will of God. So I, I, know, I know hypothetically that's absolutely the way it is. I, I'm absolutely certain, but it may not be. This may not be the will of God for one man to deliver the children of Israel. So when we get there, we'll, when the Philistines see us, if, we, if they say, come up here, we'll know that's the hand of God. We're going to go. If they say, wait till we come down there, we'll get back to, to my dad and, and the army. 
And the Philistine said, come on up here and we'll show you a thing or two. And it says that Jonathan did the Spider-Man thing. He was on his hands and his knees just skimming up this rock, you know, until finally he got to the top. And it says in a half an acre, all these Philistines dropped dead and all the Philistine army began to run and flee from Jonathan. It's not by might. It's not, not by the combination. It's not by the grouping of the forces. And then three chapters later, in 1 Samuel 17, you guys remember the story, the Philistines and the Israelites, they have this shouting match that goes on for 40 days. And then David comes down to bring food to his brothers and his commanding officers. And and he hears Goliath come out and just start cussing and swearing and putting God down and God's people down. And and David says, who's going to go down and shut that guy up? And they said, well, whoever does go, he doesn't have to pay taxes anymore. His dad pays off all his visas and MasterCards. And, and on top of that, he gets his daughter to be his wife. And, and David says, what? Tell me again now. I, I got to get all of this. Of course, he was willing to do it for free. But hey, take the perk if it's offered. And, uh, and it gets to Saul. And, and then Saul sees David. He calls him to himself. And he goes, oh, I thought you were somebody. You're just a little boy and, you know, you're a youth and this guy's been a warrior since his youth and, and let's forget the whole thing. And, and David said, let me tell you something. There was a lion, there was a bear. I ran at these guys and I took the lamb right out of its mouth. I grabbed it by its beard and I killed the lion and the bear. And if I killed the lion and the bear, surely this Philistine will be no different because as God delivered the lion and the bear by my hand, so God will deliver this uncircumcised Philistine. I love it. Because David has the perfect insight there. A lot of people say, it's not by might, not by power. Just take a nap, God will do it all. Not true. God is going to use you, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, I labor more than all. Sounds like he's boasting, but not I, the grace of God. He realizes that by the power of God, he's able to work and have these endless hours of work and all this energy and ability because God can do it. And and I love that picture. David says it was by God's deliverance, but it was into my hand that he did it. And you know the story. Saul says, here, take my armor. It goes, what kid is not going to try on armor? I mean, yeah, let's try it on. You know, this is fun. But, you know, when it comes, push comes to shove, Saul's a lot bigger, Dave's a lot smaller. He goes, I haven't tried this. I wouldn't even know what to do with this sword. Cut my toe off on the way down to try to get Goliath. But he takes his little old slingshot. And he comes down to Goliath. And Goliath says, I'm going to cut your head off, feed you the birds. And David says, you come with sword, with a spear, with a javelin. Power huge, a giant. But he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. He didn't say my slingshot. That's the name of my slingshot, the Lord. No. I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he said, I'm going to cut your head off. I'm going to feed your body to the birds. And that all people will know today that God is the God of Israel. And you know the story. It says David just started running at him and he realized, ah, my slingshot's in my pocket. And he starts pulling it out. He goes, ah, I don't have a rock. And he's running at the giant while he's pulling out his slingshot and his rock. And then he throws it and you know the story. The giant's defeated by the power of God. It's not by might we see in Jonathan. It's not by power we see in King David. 
but it's by the Lord that these things are done. The Apostle Paul, an old veteran that he was as an apostle 15 years at the end of his missionary journeys, notice he had to learn this lesson once again. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians with me and learn that lesson with Paul here today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There it is. Not by might nor by power, but by thy spirit, saith the Lord, who delivered us from so great a death and does presently deliver us, and whom we trust he will still deliver us. I've got it. It was God and the power of his spirit in the past. It's God and the power and the spirit in the present. And it's God and the power of the spirit in the future. I had to relearn that lesson. Notice there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 now, just turn the page to verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 4. For we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of, notice here, anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God, who has also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Now here it is, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Not my intellect, not my knowledge, not all of the rabbinical teachings that I've had, but it's by the Spirit of God, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then look at chapter 4 there of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, talking about our dirt bodies, our clay bodies, that the excellence of the power may be of God, and here it is, not of us. This is the joy that we have while in this human body, that it's God, it's His power working through this clay vessel. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in the mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore we speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us with, with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sake. Here it is. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. God will share his glory with no man. Paul says you've got to get it. You've got to understand it. It's not us. It's God. It's not our might. It's not our power. It's by the Spirit of God. Now look at 2 Corinthians 12 there now. Paul talks about another situation where he had to relearn this lesson. <clears throat> and he says there in chapter 12, verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet my body. I thought Paul wasn't married. A thorn in the flesh. No, I'm sorry. 
Only kidding. Come on. Have a little levity here. Lest I be exalted above measure, in verse 8, concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. Because when all our might and our power are gone, we're leaning now wholly upon the Spirit of God. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, when I, God reduces me and reduces me and reduces me until finally, like Abraham, I'm good as dead. Like Sarah, I'm 90 years old, an old woman, way past the age of childbearing. Now God says, when I work... There is no doubt about it. It was me. And when I do it, I will receive all of the glory. Now, in a nutshell, that's Calvary Chapel's philosophy. People often ask the question, why do you have a dove up as the Calvary Chapel logo, for lack of a better word? It's because of this. Our pastor Chuck Smith, for 17 years, tried to do the denominational thing until it pounded him and pounded him. Finally, he just died. And he said, I can't do it anymore. I quit. And he said, all I'm going to do is just teach the Bible. If people are hungry, they can come. If it doesn't entertain them, they can leave. I, I can't do it anymore. He tried to do the evangelistic thing. That's what the denomination said. Try to evangelize every week. But no new sinners were there. And, and it didn't happen. And nobody was getting saved. And, and the church was being reduced. And, and, and finally, he just saw in the word that a faithful shepherd after God's heart will just teach the people with knowledge and understanding. He just started teaching the word. Well, right about that time, the denomination called up with their newest program. They had a couple programs that happened every year. And their newest program was to help church growth. And, and they... And, Chuck was invited to the meeting. All the pastors are there. And, and basically Chuck said, I'm not going to do it. And they said, yes, you are. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, several months later, he got a call from the district guy that said, hey, we need all your church to come to this big convention because we all want everybody to be there when we give you the trophy for winning this program because you had the greatest amount of church growth. And Chuck said, I, I better not be there because it would be an embarrassment to our denomination because our church doesn't know anything about the program. And I didn't realize we had more church growth than anybody else because I haven't focused on that. The Bible says as they continued in the apostles' doctrines and they continued in the breaking of, prayer and, and breaking of bread and in prayers, it says, and God added to the church daily as many as to be saved. It says in Matthew, Jesus says, I will build my church. The Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. That's a horrible thing because we can build it in our flesh. We can have an Ishmael. Remember, I, I get stuff every single day on these kind of programs and I just, you know, round file them. And, you know, every once in a while I'll get really angry and send them a letter. Don't send me anymore. It didn't seem to matter. But this one, this guy called and said, look, we can put, I think it was 20 phones in your church, and people all they do is commit to a two hours a night of calling for X amount a week, and we guarantee at least 20% growth in your church. And I just laughed. I thought, if I could Ishmael it and get 20% more people in, I would be doing it again six months, calling those same people, asking them not to come back. 
because it would be such a thorn in our flesh. We can build it. That's the sad thing. But once you build it, you got the Ishmael you have to live with. And we don't want that. We want the power of God. We want God to do it. We want His Spirit to do it. We want it to be what He wants it to be. And that He, indeed, would accomplish it. And that we wouldn't try to perfect in the flesh what God's begun by the work in His Spirit. I love that story of King Asa. Remember that in Chronicles where he just started as king, he was a righteous king, and all of a sudden the Ethiopians come up against him. There were a million people. He didn't even have any weapons of war. And I love that prayer. In 2 Chronicles 14, he just went before the Lord and he said, God, it doesn't matter whether there were many or whether there were few. It doesn't matter whether we have strength or have no strength at all because the battle is yours. Don't let these guys defeat you. Amen. And I love it as you compare the passages it says in another place, talking the same story, it says that God rained rocks out of heaven and more were killed by God than the sword. Well, now, years and years later, in Asa's 36th year of his reign, his brother, who's now as idolatrous, the nation of Israel, their Judah, is being idolatrous. They come up and put a siege against Jerusalem. And, and Asa freaks out. He starts ripping the gold off the temple and getting all the money he can. And he goes to the king of Syria saying, break your treaty with Israel. Make it with us and, and get these guys out of here. And, and he started attacking Israel's borders. And, and Israel had to go and defend their borders. And, and there they went and got all of the lumber and stuff. They were building a siege city. And they built a city where their city couldn't be sieged again. It seemed like a big victory until Hanani, the prophet, showed up. And he said, you remember when you were a little peon <laughs> and you had no power, you had nobody to turn to, you had no resources, you just cried out to God and now God delivered you? And now here you are years later, you didn't even think to ask God. And now, not only did Israel not get punished by me for their disobedience, Syria is now going to become a greater country, and they're going to come and make war against you, and you're going to have continual wars because of that disobedience. And then he says this verse, 2 Chronicles 16:9. Don't you know that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth to look upon someone, one person, if that's all he can find, who is completely surrendered, completely loyal, completely given over to God and trusting him in entirety, and then God can take that person. This is the Brian Newberry expanded version. And God can take that person, and he can strengthen him and build him up, and then he can show the whole world the power and the might of God through that one person. Well, when Asa heard that, he got angry, threw the prophet in jail. And then it says later that God put a disease upon Asa's feet. And although he sought physician after physician, nobody could help him. Why? Because it was a disease that God made. Nobody could cure it but God. But it said even though he sought physician after physician, he would not seek the Lord. And two years later, he died from that disease in his feet. The reality is, is he was trying to perfect in the flesh what God had begun by the Spirit. And God challenged him at a point in his life saying, look to my Spirit. Even though you have your resources, you have your abilities, don't be a part of it. One person pointed out that if you look at the book of Acts and you were to take out every story, every verse that had to do with the power of God's Spirit. In other words, that story couldn't be in there if it wasn't a part of God's power of His Spirit doing it. If you were to take it all out, that you would only have 5% of the book of Acts left. 
But then the question comes back. If you look at what the church is doing today, and you were to erase what God was doing by the power of His Spirit, He said 99% of what the church is doing, they could do without the power of God's Spirit. It's grievous. There was a pastor who came over from China and he did a tour of all of America. It took him several months. And at the very last night before he was going back to China, he happened to be at a Calvary Chapel. And the pastor asked him, he says, well, you've seen basically all kinds of different denominations all over America. What do you think of the Church of America? He said, I'm incredibly impressed because I never knew how much man could accomplish without God. That was his commentary. <laughs> all of the things they could do and accomplish in their programs and all of the things they were busy about, but yet the power of God didn't have to be there for man and his energies, man and his abilities to make it happen. I think he was very correct. Jesus said, abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus commands us in Ephesians 5 to be filled and then continue to be filled with the Spirit of God. I'm going to end here today with a thought. We're going to look at another passage. This is exactly where we are. <laughs> a week and a half ago, we had an all-church meeting. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. Where were we? Zechariah chapter 3. <laughs> here we are now in this middle of this building project. And before us now is a mountain. And I, and I love it. Because if you knew all the details and all the facts, it is insurmountable. We cannot accomplish it. We cannot do it. But yet I know that just like King David, God wants to use your hands. He wants to use your feet. God wants to give you a power of His grace to cause us by His power to accomplish and to finish this work. Look, if you would, over to... 2 Corinthians chapter 8 with me. We're going to look at a few verses out of 8 and then 9 and we're going to close here today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there is a great financial need in Jerusalem at this time that Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you, notice, the grace of of God which is bestowed on the church of Macedonia so Paul's writing to the Corinthian church saying there's this move in this region called Macedonia where God just radically poured out his grace and that same work that God just by the power of the Spirit poured upon the church of Macedonia that same grace needs to be poured upon you and notice what he goes on to say that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in riches of their liberality, their giving. For I bear witness according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with urgency, get this money to Jerusalem, that we may receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. So here, this group in Macedonia, they were being persecuted. They were under incredible hardship as a region. There was an incredible poverty financially that was already amongst them. But yet Paul says, hey, <clears throat> we're going to share what God's doing anyway. This is what the Lord's instruct us to do, to take an offering to help the people in Jerusalem. 
And here were these people in deep poverty already, incredible affliction and persecution and difficulty, and there they saw the grace of God pour upon them. And then with joy and liberality, God gave them an ability by His strength, by His Spirit, where they just gave, not only of what they had, but beyond what they had. And then they said, oh, we just have such a joy ministering to God and ministering to the saints in it. And then in verse 5, notice, and not only as we had hoped, But notice what happened. They first gave themselves to the Lord. The Bible makes it clear. Where our treasure is, what? There our heart is also. And so now as they come to that heart of surrender of everything they have, they find themselves being surrendered to God. And then to us, by the will of God, talking about the finances. So we urge Titus that he had begun, he would have completed, notice here in verse 6, very important, that he would have completed this grace in you as well. Not the collecting of the money, but the joy and the spirit of liberality that God, by the power of his spirit, placed upon them. But as you are abound in everything, so God's done certain things in your life, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, but now see that this grace also abounds in you. So some of you are here and and you're saying, man, I'm seeking God in the Word like I've never done it. That's great. God's Spirit has enabled you to get up and to seek Him. Man, I'm, I'm teaching Sunday school. God, by His grace, has enabled you to do that. But there's still this other grace, and, and this is what happens in this time of a season. And in a matter of a few weeks, I can't even say a couple months anymore. In a matter of a few weeks, we're going to be in that new building. And right before us right now, just like Zerubbabel, is a mountain of things that need to be done. And I love it because we have no might. We have no power. There is no ability in our hands. And we come now before the Lord as a congregation. This has been my prayer from day number one. That God would get all the glory. And just like in the book of Nehemiah, it says, even their enemies knew that God had accomplished this thing. And then he goes on to say, that now that as Titus was able to teach these guys and, and help them to understand the nature of God, it says this grace poured upon them, and now I pray that he can come to you and educate you and help you, and the same grace would pour upon you in this area of giving. And notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Now notice the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace in Jesus' heart, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage, not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to also do a year ago, but now that you must complete the doing of it, that there was a readiness to desire it, so there is also maybe a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is acceptable according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened because Corinthians was a rich area. So I'm not saying that the rich area, Corinth has to give everything and all the poor people don't have to give anything. I'm not saying that. But by the equality. And now at this time, your abundance may supply their lack. So the Macedonians gave not only of what they had, but what they didn't have, but it's not enough. But yeah, you guys are rich, and you could give out of your abundance, and you could meet their need. But notice that their abundance, what is their abundance? The grace of that spirit of giving may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. 
As it's written, he has gathered much, had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Chapter 9 now of 2 Corinthians. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Or I might add to that, as the grace of God comes upon him. Not grudgingly, or notice, of necessity. And I need to stop here and make it clear. God's going to do it. <laughs> I have no worry. I have no concern. I have no fret. I unfortunately have not missed one meal. I've missed no sleep. God's going to do it. There is no fret or concern. Although, before us appears a need, I know we're not going to ever give out of necessity. God's going to do it. I have absolutely no doubt. But I also know that it's before you that God wants to use your hands, your feet. God wants to use your life. And so it has to be as you have been graced in your heart. For God loves a cheerful, a hilarious giver. And God, notice here in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9, and God is able to make, listen to this, all grace abound towards you. That you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance of every good work. As you give, it's given back unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. As it's written, He, God, has dispersed abroad. What you have, God has given it to you today. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And in verse 10, Now may He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. When they gave to the first temple project, King David, after all the people gave and he had given and the leaders had given, David says, in your hand is to make great and you give strength to all. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as we have done? For all things come from you and of your own we have given to you. So David realized, even though they all gave, he realized at the end of it, there was just this spirit of grace that was poured upon the congregation. And it was by God's grace that they had all given. And it was by God's grace that they now had all of the supplies to build the temple that Solomon, after David, would build. You know, I think this is the last lesson as we head towards the building project. You know, way back when we started this. We said, you know what? Our prayer is this, that one, God would build this thing and we would all stand in awe and say, God is in the midst of us. But secondly, that God would change us. That we would take the burden, if you would, of the church, of God's people. That we would have the same zeal that Jesus had when he came into the temple and it says, the zeal of my house has eaten me up. This house is to be a house of prayer that all of us would not just look at a building, we would look at it like Jesus did. This is the house of God. It's the place of worship. And it would eat us up. And then we would be eaten up with a heart of prayer. That we wouldn't have everybody else praying, but we would have a heart for prayer. That the largest congregation would be the prayer meeting. That the longest meeting we have together would be the prayer meeting. That we would learn to pray. And that we would where your treasure is, there your heart would be also, that you would minister to God, minister to his people as you sacrifice your life, 
as you sacrifice your comfort, as you sacrifice your plans, that you would only just give of your ability, but behind your ability, because God's grace would be upon you. Not grudgingly, not of necessity. There's no worry. There's no concern. God has done it. God is going to continue to do it. But I also know the work God wants to do in every one of our hearts. And this is it. We're heading now into the new building. Chapter 3, God has brought purity. And now we're here in chapter 4. And God is wanting to pour out a new grace upon us. That when we go into the new building, we would be a new people. That we would be a people sanctified, set apart for the master's use. Purified, on fire, empowered by the working of God's spirit. This is it. And then we see Paul in the same situation in the New Testament saying there was this huge need that was there in Jerusalem. And there he said, what we needed was exactly what we see in Zechariah 4, the grace of God to be poured upon you. Just as you guys have done great with knowledge and speech and diligence and the love for us, that you would also now abound in this area also, in tithes, in offerings, in particular offerings at this time towards the building. But it has to be the grace of God. It has to be the work of God. And just like Abraham, the ram was caught in the thicket, and there he was able to offer it in a sacrifice. In the mount of the Lord, God has provided. God wants to make us funnels in which he can flow through, whether it's in finances, whether it's in love, whether it's in power, whether it's in service, that we could say as Paul, I labor more than all, but don't get me wrong, I'm not wiped out and bummed out and overworked. I'm not saying that. It's the grace of God that I have this ability to work and to work and to labor and to give and to love and to serve. And guess what? At the end of it, I'm energized. (laughs) I'm not doing anything. It's the grace of God that gives me this ability. And that is what we need, the grace of God. You guys need the grace of God in your marriages because you've tried it. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's not by the books. It's not by the counselors. It's not by the advice. It's not by, it's by God's spirit in your life and in your marriage. It's by God's spirit in raising your kids. And the reality is, is there's an abundance of God's grace that needs to be poured upon our lives for every area of our life, and in particular right now, as a congregation, this mountain of the building in front of us, and in this I rejoice. Because when we're there and that capstone is put, that final brick is put in place, we'll all be able to shout grace, grace into it. Amen?